canon of scripture and not uh, the boomy boom canons. Andrew. Sad. Bovcast. 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 This is the Bovcast. A podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Welcome to another episode of Bovcast. I am Andrew Smith. I am Caleb Castro. Today we are going to do something a little bit different, a little bit special. We are going to talk about heavy artillery. <laughs> All right, where where are we going with that? Well, you told me we were going to talk about the cannon, so I studied up on you know various cannons throughout history, types of powder, types of cannonballs uses in various stages of historical warfare, that sort of thing. That's what we're doing, right? So I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding there. Do tell. Well, when we talk about the cannon, Andrew, we're not talking about the things that go boom, the things that Tchaikovsky used in his 1812 overture. We're talking about a cannon as uh, a rule. We're talking about uh, the biblical word canon. We're talking about the Bible, the collection of the books of the Bible as the canon of scripture oh that canon andrew you're silly why didn't you say so because we were saving it for another episode oh okay so i guess bob ink on heavy artillery comes later <laughs> today we're going to talk about the canon of scripture <laughs> that's, that's the uh, that's the third appendix <laughs> you, just have a whole, you have a whole chapter dedicated to heavy artillery <laughs> gatling guns that would be so oddly specific <laughs> the theology of warfare you know actually on the topic of theology of warfare when i was in college i went to a church that had a lot of john macarthur influence and one of the running jokes that my friends there and i had is what if the macarthur study bible was actually written by general douglas macarthur <laughs> like what would it be talking about <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Everything is a war metaphor. <laughs> well, that would be terrible. <laughs> that would. That's kind of like... Well, and yet perhaps amusing. Isn't there a study Bible out that's like, what is it, the Patriots study Bible or the, the Patriots version or something? Yeah, the uh, American Patriots Bible. <laughs> that's right, the American Patriots Bible. I, I don't have one. I haven't read one, but I hear that's a thing, which I'm sure is just all kinds of wonderful properly contextualized exegesis well, i'm fairly certain that i was actually offered one a year and a half ago or something yeah we won't go into that i think it's an nkjv of all things as well so that's that's fun if we will get into some of that as well maybe later down the road we'll get into some of Bovink's political theology which is actually a pretty large and interesting and important part of his work and then maybe we could actually interact with some of those sort of ideas and see how they stack up but yeah this is not the day for that, nor is it the day for heavy artillery. No, but I do enjoy, he's writing from, you know, the, also the perspective of how awesome uh, America is, uh, you know, how, <laughs> how much he is a patriot for our nation, right? That's true. We have talked about that. And I mean, he did see some good in America, but generally had concerns and reservations. If you haven't heard that, you can go back, listen to our interview with Dr. James <laughs> Eglinton from late last year, where we treated that issue over a couple of episodes that's right but for now we're going back to the non-boomy canon yeah if you've been listening to our last few episodes we've been working our way through chapter seven 
of the wonderful works of God, and we've covered most of it. There's this small section at the end. It's pages 97 through 99, and Bavink talks a little bit. He doesn't go into a lot of detail, but about the canon of Scripture. Why do we have this set of books in the Bible that we do? And so we thought it might be helpful, because this is a challenging issue, often a controversial and contentious issue in the church today, and even among non-believers, just really anybody who comes in contact with Christianity is making claims and assertions about the canon of Scripture. Well, why do we have these books? Why do we count on these books? Why not other books? So we thought it would be helpful to take some time and talk about some of the issues in play when we talk about the canon of Scripture. Perhaps some other issues along with what you were saying there is then what is the basis for these books being considered official? How did this happen? You know, what is the church's role in this? Uh, What is the relation of the individual's faith to this? And can there be more books? We've talked about, you know, an additional letter of Paul surfacing at some point, and we've alluded to some of these things before. Or even like, perhaps, if you are Roman Catholic or know someone who's Roman Catholic, if you pick up one of their translations of the Bible, you flip through the pages or you look in the table of contents, you'll notice, oh, there's some books here that maybe I haven't seen before. These aren't in my Bible. Well, what are they? And... Why are they here and should they be here? Are we missing something? Yeah, and even for not Roman Catholics, we can just keep expanding this. I mean, occasionally you'll get something in the news, you know, something about a lost book of the Bible, lost gospel mm-hmm. was found. Why was this omitted from the Bible? This is, you know, the the book of Thomas uh, or the Gospel of Judas that the church didn't want uh, people to read because it would reveal the truth about XYZ, what Jesus right. was really like. You know, the popular view of Christianity and the Bible's origins, kind of like the uh, Da Vinci Code perspective of Christianity. I think I might have told this story once before, but it's probably been long enough I can tell it again. Uh, when I was a kid, you know, around Christmas and Easter, like History Channel and Discovery Channel and the like, they run documentaries about things related to Christianity, things related to the Bible. And I remember one year we were, as a family, watching a documentary and it was talking about the discovery of the Gospel of Thomas. And it was all this, you know, oh, this book is so important and it's so good and it should have been included in the Bible. And then at the end, now I was like, seven years old or something i turned to my parents i'm like are we gonna start getting bibles with the gospel of thomas in them then and i don't think they really knew what to say and i think as christians it's important to know what to say in these situations because these questions come up be it from overly inquisitive seven-year-olds or if you go to college you might have uh, professors that push certain views or You know, certain other religious groups, even some that claim to be Christian that want to add to the scriptures or say there's more books we need to have. So what do we do? How do we deal? How do we deal? Yeah, I mean, it's it's everywhere. It's abundant. You know, you can go into Costco and find a book by a former evangelical, now secular Bible scholar Bart Ehrman talking about, you know, why the Bible is not reliable and all this kind of stuff. He's, he focuses so much on the human element. And part of uh, his argument is how the church has had one dominant Orthodox group that, you know, subjugated all the other groups, uh, all the other little fringe mm. small groups that were, to his position, considered Orthodox. Orthodox at one point, but then the church formed an episcopacy and you had a bunch of bishops that then like silenced everyone else. Yeah, basically Ehrman, and he's working off of some earlier hypotheses of, I think it's, is it F.C. Bauer? Uh, yeah. Basically, early Christianity was very diverse, which 
it is interesting as you get into these scholarly theories, how often do they reflect the current context they're trying to speak to where we have diversity as a priority in our present society. So it's argued that diversity is actually what characterized the early church. There was all these different perspectives and all of these different views going on, and that was fine. But then there was this basically authoritarian hierarchical structure that came in and crushed all of that diversity. That's mean. Yeah, how could they do that? The question is, is that really true? Is that really the story of Scripture where there was all these other perspectives and all these different books that were accepted in various times and places and it was some later development to cut down to what we have now? We'll come back to this uh, a little bit. We can talk a little bit more about maybe elaborate on some of the Roman Catholics position versus what we say is the reform position on what the canon is. But let's take a look at uh, what Bobbing says here then. There on the second paragraph there after that break, on page 97, Bobbing says, in the first place, we know that each book besides having had its individual origin eventually took its place in a collection or canon, that is a list or group of writings which constitute the rule of faith and life. Such a collection had already taken place within the pale of a single book. For example, uh, Psalms and Proverbs. We have multiple authors. Uh, eventually, these uh, were compiled together from several different periods. But he says, we must not suppose, however, that the church made this biblical canon or that the church granted canonical authority to any of the writings of scripture. Rather, the very moment that these books were composed, that these books were written, they had already been authoritative because they are really written and supervised by the Spirit, by God himself. So they're already at that point authoritative and binding for the church as the word of God as a rule of life and faith for what is necessary for our salvation. We've already talked about this a little bit, because Bovink did say this earlier in this chapter, that the Bible presents itself as a covenantal document. There is attributes, particularly in the Pentateuch, of a covenant being entered into with the people. There is an authority on its face. People see this and they recognize, oh, this is God speaking to us. This is authoritative because of what it is. It's not authoritative because we said so. It's authoritative because this is God's word. Right. Now, what this means is that, for one thing, faith is inseparable from the equation. Mm -hmm. To believe that we actually have a Bible, that we have a canonical scripture that is the word of God, it does require the belief that there is a God and that he has spoken to his people through the written word. Right. You know, one of the, I think, best instances that we actually see this principle derived from can be found in Paul. You have uh, in passages like Galatians 6.16 and 2 Corinthians 10.13-16, where Paul actually uses the term canon. So it is a biblical word. It is an actual terminology in the Greek that Paul is basically using to talk about not only uh, what he is writing, but he just uses canon to describe the whole doctrine, all the teachings that are consistent with true Christian behavior, a rule of life and conduct. He alludes to the word of God as that which determines our life and conduct. The teachings and doctrines of scripture are the ways in which Paul and others may know that someone is Christian and holding to all the things that the Lord has described and written down as truth. Well, and this is important, too, as we evaluate these modern, secular, skeptical attacks on the Bible. So when we're dealing with somebody like a Bart Ehrman, 
we have to recognize that Bart Ehrman is operating on a different basis, essentially. I mean, he was at some point a professing Christian, professing evangelical, but he's not anymore. He's a skeptic. Is he an atheist? I believe he is, or at least agnostic. Yeah. So Bart Ehrman does not believe in God, or at least the God of the Bible. So basically, he is approaching this issue of canon and this issue of the composition of the Bible from a strictly naturalistic, humanistic perspective. Basically, what did people do? How did the people come up with this? The fact of the matter is it's a different starting point because Bart Ehrman is not operating from, well, there is a God and he has spoken to his people through his word. Yeah, you know, again, Paul gives us a good example of that once more. I'd mentioned 2 Corinthians 10 where Paul is essentially defending his apostolic authority, his commissioned office uh, from God because there had been... Uh, some in Corinth who basically were rising up and trying to discredit Paul. They were trying to push him out as an authoritative leader by basically showing letters of approval that these false teachers had stating, hey, trust these guys came from another Christian community or or, or it came from another nearby community rather. Basically, Paul chastises these false teachers, these false leaders as sowing division, discord, and that they are an irregularity in the things that they teach. In other words, they're not the norm of what is consistent with scriptural teaching in life and practice. He's basically saying these men go against the standard or the measure of the doctrine that is the Christian faith. So even in this day, if we have teachers like Bart Ehrman and such rising up, teaching a humanistic perspective that is out of accord with the entirety of scripture, we say they go against the rule. They go against the norm. They do not measure up to scripture's standards of doctrine. And if you read many of the disputed books or the apocryphal books, you see this playing out. They teach things that when held up against the other books, they're clearly doing something different. They're clearly describing different sorts of realities and different sorts of principles. So like if you look at, for instance, the intertestamental books, these are the books that are, for instance, the apocryphal books you would see in Roman Catholic Bibles. So you do have some books like the Maccabees that are helpful, like they document some of the history and culture and so forth of Israel during the intertestamental period, the time from the conclusion of Old Testament authorship to the time of Christ. But then you have other books, like one of my favorites is Bell and the Dragon, that just is really pretty weird. So Bell and the Dragon was like, it was an additional chapter added on to Greek versions of the book of Daniel. So it doesn't appear in the Hebrew, so that right there is one big red flag. But basically, Bell and the Dragon is, it's like the Book of Daniel meets Skyrim or some (laughs) other sort of fiction where there's, because Daniel actually kills a dragon. And it's like, number one, this isn't even like real. This isn't even like possible. And the other thing is, it's just like, why? What's What's the point of this? It's not putting forth the same kind of teaching or the same sort of activities of God and through history that we see in the rest of scripture. And then also, again, the dubious sourcing, the same of like the Gnostic gospels, what they're typically called these like gospel of Thomas and other purported gospels. A lot of them claim to be written by apostles, but in reality they came much later and you read them. There's like, 
weird stuff going on. There's like I'm trying to remember which one it is where it's an infancy gospel. Infancy gospel of Thomas. Yeah, so because there's actually multiple things claiming to be gospels of Thomas, and you have Jesus like throwing people off of buildings and strange stuff like that. And I'm telling the story <laughs> well, wrong. But if you just if you read them, they're weird. They're like they're not consistent with the doctrine or even with the person and work of Christ as we know it from canonical scripture. Yeah, I mean, I think in the, in that one you're alluding to uh, the infancy gospel of Thomas. There's an instance where Jesus like makes uh, a big group of kids like just straight up cease to exist. He just basically makes them disappear. <laughs> Yeah, it's, that's pretty out would of Jesus do that. I don't know. <laughs> Could Jesus do that? I mean, I would he, he probably would think that on some point that's a sinful thing to do. And Jesus is without sin. So there we have a sort of example of the kind of problems that these books introduce. Well, we could at least admit that Daniel killing a dragon is kind of cool. So maybe that's why they like latched onto it. It's almost like Bible fan fiction. Like, (laughs) we're not satisfied with what's here. We need more. Oh, we need to fill in the gaps. What did Jesus do as a little boy? (laughs) What did Jesus do, you know, from the last time we see him as a child to... When he reappears as an adult in scripture, oh, well, let's just fill in those gaps. Problem is, it's not true. And like I said, usually gets pretty weird. You're right. And the fact there's gaps, like say there's a gap in the period between Jesus's youth and the start of his ministry. We have what God wants us to have, what is necessary for our salvation. Like, you know, more there's just because there's certain periods missing doesn't pose a problem in the least. It's that God has withheld that as unnecessary to the story the plan uh, of redemption that's being told in scripture the story of god well and what we see is when these things do get written and when they take off and become popular and stuff we can see the wisdom we can see god's providence and why he's given us what he's given us our tendency is to want more our tendency is to speculate and to veer off into strange myths And, you know, God has said with this canon, with this rule, with giving us the scriptures we have, preserving them the way that he has, this is what you need. You go this far and no farther. Let's get even more specific on that. At the bottom of page 97, going to page 98, and Bobby talks about how, okay, so with the early church, you know, suddenly you have all the apostolic writings are, are put forward, but then in some circles, there was false writings starting to be circulated, whether apocryphal or apocalyptic in, in, a, in a non-biblical way, or even just those with false names attached to them, like, say, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, and whatnot. God was pleased to have provided the fact that we do recognize the true authoritative books of scripture, that there is essentially built within them the means for them to be collected as a canon by their own merits, their own nature. He writes there, page 97, that took place for the books of the Old Testament before Christ, the collection, as well as for those of the New Testament in the fourth century after Christ. There is a special science whose work it is to investigate this matter and to shed light on the canonicity of the Bible. So there is a whole field of canonics. Additionally, in this, then, you get the question of what do we do with manuscripts? And that is a big question because, as Bob Inc. acknowledges, we don't have the original autographs. The autographs being the actual copy or the book as written by the hand of the apostles, the hands of the authors. Now, in one sense, this can actually be a good thing. We see what happens with the church and when it has had supposed relics of important things of history. If we actually found an autograph of one of the books of the Bible, 
Seems like people would probably do things like set up shrines and worship them because that's just the way that we fallen sinful humans like to be. On the other hand, it does pose a difficulty. Like we don't have the book of John, the original copy from John's hand. Instead, we have all these hundreds, thousands of manuscripts. They don't all match up perfectly. And so we have to figure out What's what? The same with the Old Testament. We have the Masoretic text, which is our oldest complete Hebrew text, but they date to around the 9th or 10th century. We have older stuff. We have like fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Those date to around the 1st or 2nd century BC. They're the oldest Old Testament manuscripts we have. We also have the Septuagint, which is an old Greek translation. Uh, the Old Testament, and it's helpful because although it itself is in Greek, it was translated from an older Hebrew source. But we have all of these various pieces. How do we fit them together, and how do we determine what actually is supposed to be there? Yeah, and in this way, we can also look to how uh, the people of the past have dealt with these books. How have other uh, ancient writers considered these books? You know, just for one instance, the Jewish historian Josephus was working in the late first century. So even then, soon after the collapse of the temple in 70 AD, he was already doing some major writing and talking about the not only Jewish backgrounds of the scriptures, but also the Christian uh, to him sect. But Josephus talks about uh, much of the history of the Jewish reception of the canon. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I believe he even talks about, uh, uses the word received. But he talks about how the books were arranged. The five books of Moses, 13 prophetic books, and then four books of hymns to God, which also served as uh, precepts for the conduct of human life. He talks about Ruth and Judges and Lamentations and Jeremiah and the 12 minor prophets as being collected together in a single book in the ancient period. I suppose this brings us to an important issue when discussing the canon and perhaps one of the larger misconceptions when we're dealing with the canon. It's a commonly held belief that there was some singular event in the history of the early church where they all got together and decided, okay, this is our canon. That never really happened. What happened was we had these books, and you can you can see that in Caleb's example from Josephus. You see it even in how the books of the Bible use each other and refer to each other. But basically what happened is these books were received as authoritative, not in any singular act, but just broadly by the church and recognized as such. Now there were some points of dispute. There were other books, early books like the Epistle of Barnabas, the Didache, and these are helpful books. They have some good teaching in them, but at the end of the day, for various reasons, were rejected by the church as inauthentic or otherwise not needed or not wanted or not considered to be canonical scriptures, not considered to be inspired works. You have some of the books, like for instance, there was some controversy over the letter to the Hebrews because it wasn't certain who wrote it. One of the criteria, and Bob Inc. mentioned this on page 98, the pseudo-epigraphical books, books that were claimed to be written by somebody but actually weren't. Any book that was proven to not be written by who it was said would have been instantly tossed out, would not have been received. But then you have the issue of, well, there's other books where we don't really know who wrote them. So there was some controversy about Hebrews. Eventually it was accepted. 
Revelation was another one that was controversial because just the content of it, it's, you know, very apocalyptic, very strange. And so there was a lot of controversy and discussion of, well, how many multi-headed monsters do we really want in our Bible? But ultimately was found to be the work of John and was found to be canonical. So it wasn't necessarily a immediate or easy process, but it was a process with wide consensus, and ultimately everyone landed in the same place. Yeah, you bring up Hebrews and Revelation. In addition, there was also issues with, for some people, some regions for figuring out the status of, you know, Jude, uh, Second Peter, and Second and Third John as well. Jude has that portion from Enoch that brings an additional question to its, you know, is this authoritative scripture? Then, you know, if it's citing this apocryphal text, is mm-hmm. you know Second Peter the same author as First Peter? Because the Greek is quite different. Similarly, the uh, epistles of Second and Third John that I mentioned. There's also questions for some Old Testament books uh, at certain times in history, such as Ezekiel, Ecclesiastes, because Ecclesiastes is just so dark. You know, Ezekiel's pretty weird at times, it seems. Proverbs, because there's some use of other ancient Near Eastern modes, uh, forms of Proverbs. Song of Solomon, it's a bit steamy. And Esther, which the book never explicitly references the Lord or the covenant. They seem quite different in character than the rest of the Old Testament. But that said, they were still recognized as authoritative by some groups and likely the majority of groups. You did have certain gatherings like the Council of Gymnia around 90 AD that did agree that the Old Testament canon was complete. They didn't pronounce it. They didn't say we are fixing the canon itself. We are the ones authoritative to decide this, but they recognized that we have received the complete Old Testament canon, and these are the books. Similarly, with the New Testament canon, we did have some early church authors like Athanasius in his festal epistle around the late 4th century, mid to late 4th century AD, give the earliest witness of our present New Testament canon, the canon we still have fixed today. Uh, You did have some gatherings in the Council of Rome under uh, Damasus going in the Galatian decree, producing a similar list, even the early heretic Marcion that published something of a list of books that he at least recognized, though his canon pretty much only authorized the non-Jewishy text, like parts of Luke and uh, Paul's epistles. Marcion particularly interested in doing away with the Old Testament. Right, right. So it's important as we look at these discussions of canonicity is we need to recognize the means by which God allowed the Bible to be written and preserved. So I talked a little bit earlier about the Hebrew texts and many of these intertestamental apocryphal books don't ever appear in Hebrew. They appear only in Greek. Now, even within that, there's difficulty. Like, for instance, how do you pronounce the Hebrew vowels? So if you've ever studied Hebrew or even if you haven't, how the vowels in a word goes are very important. It can determine how you might have a word that on the page looks exactly the same, but could be a noun or could be a verb. So vowel pointers were something that was added to the text later to try to preserve the pronunciation and to preserve the proper classification of words. But it's a later edition, so it's not part of the inspired or infallible text. So we have issues that come with that. 
The same with translations. As I mentioned, the Septuagint, it's a translation of Hebrew, but it's old. It's older than many of the Hebrew texts we have. So it has to be at least given some consideration. That would actually be a pretty good breaking point right there. Go ahead and end this episode. We're looking to save for next time a conversation on the charge of there being errors in the text. And, you know, we have so many different manuscripts. There's variations in some of these in, in some words and such. What do we do with that? You know, what is the Roman Catholic position that we've been talking about a little bit that we've been alluding to? You know, is there any authoritative church decree that says, hey, these are the books? How do we handle the Roman Catholic or even at times Anglican, Episcopalian and Newsom positions that we need to have an authoritative church to say, hey, here is the reliable testimonies of scripture. We know that they are reliable because we have said so in church history, because we had a council that said, these are the books. How do we respond to that? What would the reform say for perhaps a debate that's more prevalent in our time? Can scripture be added to? You know, what do you do with a friend that comes to you and says, hey, God was speaking to me and he said X, Y, Z. How do we respond to that sort of thing in light of our conversation on the canon? So all that is for next time. We hope that this was helpful, uh, edifying, and uh, you learned something new, you know, something uh, about the canon of scripture and not uh, the boomy boom canons. Andrew. Sad. We'll save that for another time. But uh, until then, this is uh, Caleb and Andrew wishing you goodbye. That's not how we do this here. How do we do it, Andrew? Well, we do a little tote and then a little zines. Well, until next time, tote and zines. Tote, zines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.